So on this, his second day in Jerusalem, as he inches ever closer to crucifixion at the instigation of the religious leaders, Jesus once again entered the temple, as we see in verse 23. Matthew tells us that while there, Jesus was teaching. You see that again in verse 23. Matthew prefers brevity here, but Luke fills out the who and the content of Christ's teaching on this particular day. In Luke chapter 20, verse 1, we read this. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, and preaching the gospel, the very message that the religious leaders of this day hoped and sought to suppress, here is Jesus standing in the temple preaching it. And the word that's used in 20 verse 1 is evangelizo, which means that Jesus here is in some way preaching the good news of salvation offered to all by grace through faith in his name. A salvation that is opened up to us by virtue of Christ's sinless life his sin-bearing death, his sin-atoning death, and his resurrection, and his being raised again on the third day. The very message that he had been proclaiming throughout his ministry with the disciples, throughout his time with them. We see it three times already in Matthew that Jesus proclaimed this specifically to the twelve. In chapter 16, verse 21, we read, The Son must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And again in chapter 17, verse 22, we read, Jesus is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And the third in chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, He will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This proclamation has, up to this point, been reserved for the twelve, and it's now, as Jesus is in the temple on this day, being declared openly for everyone to hear. It's being declared openly in the temple so that all can listen. And the chief priests and the elders of the people cannot bear to let such a thing continue on. And so they approached Jesus as he taught, and they interrupted him. They injected themselves into the situation, demanding to see his credentials. Demanding that he reveal those credentials to the crowds that were all listening to him teach on this day. Now we know, right? based on what we have read up to this point, that these chief priests and these elders are not asking because they're actually searching for the truth. They're not, therefore, ready to repent and believe Jesus should Jesus, in fact, produce some letter of recommendation and authority from a credible source. They don't care about any of that. These men are who are described by the Apostle John in his Gospel who when they heard about Christ's miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead, they gathered together and according to John chapter 11, asked, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
And also in Luke, Luke chapter 19, verses 45 to 48, we read, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him. But they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. The principal men that are referred to, uh, the principal men of the people that Luke describes are the ones that Matthew refers to as the elders of the people. Most likely, that's a mixture of varied factions in Jerusalem. The the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes among them, among others as well. And these groups did not agree on much. But there was one thing that they could all agree on. They could all see that the ministry of, the message of, the person of Jesus Christ threatened their high and lofty status among the people. And they took note of the fact that the crowds listening to Jesus teach were hanging on his every single word. Meaning, the crowd's attention was focused in the direction of Jesus and not on the direction, in the direction of the elders of the people. For these religious leaders, this was simply unacceptable. And so in their rage, in their burning anger, in their hatred for Jesus, in a unified, concerted effort, they together sought ways to destroy Jesus. And as they approached Christ in the temple on this day, interrupting his preaching to the crowds, interrupting his evangelism, their unstated goal in this exchange is just that. How do we find something? How do we find anything by which to secure the annihilation and the elimination of this man? So they unapologetically stopped Jesus in, the midst, in mid-sentence and heckled him with this question. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Verse 23. The question sounds a lot like that which was posed to Moses back when he tried to reconcile two quarreling Israelites. He walked up to them and said, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? And as Stephen tells the story in Acts chapter 7, the man who was wronging his brother thrust Moses aside and said, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That's the, that's the tone of the question that they are bringing to Jesus. Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Because in an even greater way, Christ has come to his people. A people being misled, mistreated, and wronged by this very religious establishment. By the very shepherds that ought to have led them in paths of righteousness. These leaders in Israel at this time that interrupted Jesus were committing acts of spiritual violence against the people. And they sound a lot like the man wronging his brother calling out to Jesus, who made you judge? Still a rather common response, right, among people today, even among God's people, whenever they are exhorted or called to obey God's word or to conform their lives to God's word. I mean, I've said it, and most likely you have all said it at one point. Who are you to judge me? 
But these religious leaders, despising Christ and all of the wonderful things that he was doing, asked, who or what gives you the right, the warrant, the power to do these things? Who sent you? Who commissioned you? Who vouches for you? What authority do you claim as your source and backing to do these things? That these things that they're referring to are Christ's driving out of those who had been buying and selling in the temple, his overturning of the money changers' tables and the seats of the pigeon sellers, his rebuking of those who focused on commerce in the temple, his admonishment of those who were hindering the nations from offering prayer and praise and worship to the Lord in the temple. The religious leaders wanted to know, by what right do you accept and encourage both the praise of the crowds outside the temple and the praise of the children inside the temple, both of which cried out to Jesus, Hosanna to the Son of David? Who gives you the authority to accept those types of praises for yourself? Because as they heard Christ accept the title Son of David, they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming for himself. But they wanted him to declare it openly. And they think by coming to Jesus with this question, they have him cornered. Because if they can get him to say, I have no authority backing me, they could look at the crowds and say, well, why are you listening to this guy then? Look, he's got no one behind him. And if Jesus said, all authority, then they could, as he would after his resurrection, when he commissioned the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples, if they could get him now to say, all authority, then they could charge him with blasphemy and arrest him on the spot. But Christ has already answered this question. He answered this question when he told them, in quoting Psalm 8, verse 2, when a psalm that extols the glory of God, when he applied the fulfillment of that psalm to himself. You remember, right? Psalm 8.2, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. That's what Jesus said in chapter 21, verse 16. He applied that to himself and to the children crying out praises in the temple. The praises that the Lord has prepared for himself are the very praises that the children are shouting out to him. He is saying indirectly, I am the Lord. He is the Lord. Come to us in the flesh to seek and to save the lost. But rather than hearing him, rather than pondering, rather than considering whether or not Christ actually is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they just simply redouble their effort. They don't listen to what Jesus is saying. They redouble their effort and return to him with another question, hoping to trap him. So the religious leaders ask this question with malicious intent, with murderous motivation. But their scheme will backfire as Christ reveals their duplicity, their hypocrisy, and their lack of concern for actual truth when he replied in verse 24, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now this is a common rabbinic practice to answer a question with a question. I do it with my wife all the time and she hates it. 
Where do you want to go for dinner tonight? Where do you want to go for dinner tonight? Yeah. What do you think about this? What, what do you think about this? Drives her a little bit crazy, but it's the rabbinic practice. I'm just following in the footsteps of the rabbis. <laughs> Answering a question with a question. They want to know Christ's credentials. Well, the answer to their question is wrapped up in their answer to the question that Jesus will ask. All they need to do is pay attention to their answer and they'll have the answer. But even so, Jesus knew, and we as the readers of the text know, that it didn't matter what Jesus said at this point, did it? It wouldn't have mattered. It wouldn't have mattered to the religious leaders, I mean. Because they were going to find a way to use whatever Jesus said against him, if they could. And so this question, while it reveals the answer to their question, it also serves to display their wicked intentions to the crowds who are listening to Jesus preach on this day. And so the question that Jesus asks them is found in verse 25. Look at the question. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? So baptism here is a shorthand way of describing the entire ministry of John. It describes both John's practice of calling the people to repentance and then baptizing those who repented. And this is what John was most known for during his life. It refers to his entire ministry. You could also ask the question like this. The ministry of John, what were its origins? Was he a prophet sent by God or did he make the whole thing up in his own head? All right, Pharisees or all right, religious leaders, I leave that to you. Answer this one for me. And now the religious leaders are in a bind. Because at this point, as hard as it might be for us to believe, because Jesus is the most famous name on the planet, at this point, John the Baptist was actually more popular and more renowned than Jesus was among Israel. So upon hearing the question, the religious leaders, they immediately huddle up. And verse 25 tells us that they discussed it among themselves. Now, if you're a hopeful reader, you might hope that this is a good sign that the religious leaders have gathered themselves up to discuss the answer to this question. Perhaps they are really devoting themselves at this moment to pursuing truth. Perhaps, maybe, they've gathered up to talk and maybe they said amongst themselves, yeah, you know, what is the answer to this question? What is the truth here? Was John indeed a prophet that has come to us from God, or was he delusional? Which one is it? Let's figure this out, boys. But if you've been paying attention to the motivations of these religious leaders as revealed in the gospel, you are not surprised to see or hear that they in fact are not interested in knowing the truth, but how they might save face how they might give the most political answer, how they might give an answer that doesn't actually lead to any consequences to them. They were more concerned about how Jesus or the crowds might respond to their answers than they were with uncovering and declaring, simply declaring what was true. 
and declaring what was true with conviction. These men are supposed to be the teachers and the leaders in Israel, and they just simply could not and would not stand upon the foundation of truth with conviction. These religious leaders have forgotten, or they have simply suppressed this fact, truth is truth, regardless of how people respond to it. So the religious leaders in their discussion figured, saying to themselves, if we say from heaven, verse 25, he will say to us, why then did you not believe in him? Meaning, if we confess or if we admit that John was a prophet sent to us by the Lord, then we would also have to admit that the message he proclaimed is a divine message backed by the Lord. And if you recall the message of John the Baptist, it included such things as this, as we read in John 1, 29-32. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, in chapter 1, verse 35 to 36, as John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, he looked at Jesus as Jesus walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And again, John the Baptist made it abundantly clear when he said this in reference to Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 34. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. If then the religious leaders were to confess John as a prophet, a prophet from God, they would answer their own question as to where Jesus' authority comes from. If John is sent by the Lord, then his proclamations are divine, and in that divine proclamation, he attested to Jesus as the very Son of God. And if the religious leaders know this to be the case, the response would come from Jesus. They knew exactly what the question would be. Then why not believe him? You are rejecting, rebelling against the divine word of God. You hypocrites, you have no desire for truth at all. For these religious leaders, however, the truth of the matter was unacceptable. The truth didn't align with their preconceptions. The truth didn't fit with their narrative. The truth ran contrary to their fleshly desire for increased power and increased authority and increased status and increased prestige over the people. There was no way these religious leaders were going to submit themselves to this Jesus who commanded his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. They were not going to submit themselves to this Jesus who does not seem at this time, at this point in time, interested in overthrowing Rome and praising the current religious establishment in Jerusalem. This is not the sort of life, not the sort of Messiah that attracted the leaders in Israel. And for this reason, they refused to answer, to avoid the embarrassment of being so clearly and openly unmasked as utter hypocrites. So, 
from heaven didn't work for them as an answer. It was true, but it didn't work for them as an answer, so they refused to give it. Well, what about the alternative, from man? As we read in verse 26, if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So if these religious leaders in front of the crowds, the crowds who all highly admired, respected, and loved John the Baptist, if these religious leaders who all, or if these cr- religious leaders said in front of the crowds who all held that John the Baptist was a prophet, that he was deluded, if they suggested to the crowds that he faked the whole thing, They feared a dreadful reprisal from those crowds. Luke describes exactly what the religious leaders assumed would happen should they have made this choice of answer. In Luke 20, verse 6, If we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. And so here the religious leaders are revealed to be cowards on the one hand, And hypocrites on the other. They were, here they were, the chief priests and the elders of the people, tucking their tail between their legs and running for the exits as they answered Christ's question, we don't know. We don't know. Just as an aside, notice this phrase, we are afraid of the crowd. Fear of the crowds drove their response. Fear of the crowds, the throngs of people who are arrayed in front of them. It's the same for us, isn't it, today? Fear of the crowds. The crowds can so often dictate how we answer or how we live as Christians in this world. The crowds, as you look out, the throngs of people who are arrayed against the Lord, who are arrayed against His goodwill and against all who live for and represent Him in this world, against all who take the commission of Christ seriously, that we go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to obey everything, everything Christ has commanded. The crowds that we deal with now are crowds comprised by those or of those who actively rebel against God's word, who search out those who walk differently than the mass, who walk in the opposite direction that they are walking. And so they try subtly, if need be, plainly, if need be, and forcibly, if need be, to bring everyone into submission, to bring everyone to fall in line, to bring everyone back upon the broad road that leads to destruction. These crowds hate those who agitate and cry out to the people, look over there! Look at this other road! There's a narrow road that goes the other way and it's a narrow road that leads to life. Let's get off this broad road! See, these crowds populated as they are with scoundrels and wicked and rebels against the Lord and the cowards who profess Jesus but are too afraid to openly live for the Lord are a real problem. 
If you go to Revelation 2, you will be met with this group of people called the Nicolaitans. Many assume or believe that the Nicolaitans were of this persuasion. These were the types who would profess Jesus with their lips, but in fear of the crowds, simply went with the flow of the crowds while convincing themselves that they were super Christian. For example, if, a crowd, if the crowds went and ate in the idol, at idol temples, which the Apostle Paul explicitly declared as satanic in his first letter to the Corinthians, if you recall, the Nicolaitans were right there in the temples eating that meat, saying, we know we are Christians. And while it may look outwardly like we're participating with the crowd, being sensitive to the crowd, trying not to offend the crowd, we know in our hearts that we are worshiping Jesus. The Nicolaitans were the type to do whatever it took to avoid any reprisal for their faith, even when it meant supporting Roman pagans in their idolatrous sexual delusions. And Jesus, speaking to the church at Pergamum in Revelation 2, verse 6, called upon them, or in uh, uh, Revelation 2:15, called upon them to repent of their Nicolaitan tendencies. And to the church at Ephesus, Jesus said, this is one thing you have going for you, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, the crowds have always turned their eyes in hostility toward those who would seek to live an openly, holy, godly, Christ-honoring, biblically obedient and faithful life. And the the turning of the crowds against such people will inspire fear in many. I don't think any one of us can say we are exempt from at one point or another or even now being afraid of the reprisal of the crowds for living an open faith. It did for the Nicolaitans. And it does for many today who, while not Nicolaitans per se, definitely live and act very similar to the Nicolaitans. You see the crowds oftentimes impact how professing Christians live life in the world, and how, oh, how often do we see, how often do we ourselves fear the crowds in the same way that the religious leaders did in this day? How often do people that we, who know the truth, who profess Christ with their lips, when the crowds press in, simply say, I don't know, in order to avoid the disapproval or reaction, or reprisal of the crowds. And the Lord knows that this is a common fear in humanity. This is why the Lord repeatedly tells us in Scripture over and over again, do not fear them. Do not let the crowds shift your mind from full dedication, obedience, and proclamation of the truth of God to lies. Proverbs 29, the fear of man lays a snare, meaning it's a dangerous trap, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Isaiah 51, I, the Lord, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth and you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of your oppressor? When he sets himself to destroy, where is the wrath of your oppressor? The idea being, God is in control. Don't fear. Psalm 27.1, we opened our service with it. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And as the letter to the Hebrews encouraged his reader, as the writer of the letter to the Hebrews encouraged his readers, so we can confidently say, according to Hebrews 13, 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's the fear of the crowds that led Peter to betray Jesus on that night. And always remember, the crowds are a den of robbers. The crowds are filled with those committed to their immoralities, to suppressing what can be known about God in favor of their fetishes and their idolatries and their self-exaltation. But we must never forget this. The crowds that we fear are the very mission field that we are called to minister in labor in. These are the ones to whom we are called to reveal the truth of Christ, who is himself the truth. These are the, the ones that we are called to minister, to speak, to declare, to publish the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. A message which by necessity includes exposing, naming, and declaring God's hatred for the sins of that crowd. The gospel includes the recognition that the sinner outside of faith in Christ is right now under the wrath of God and should they continue in their wicked, rebellious, fleshly ways and refuse the call of the Lord, then his vengeance will fall upon them and their eternal future will be one under his burning hot anger and just punishment. But for those who come to the saving knowledge, who turn to Christ in faith, these have the disposition of God, God's steadfast love toward them. But as we all know, to bring this message to the crowds is dangerous. It might very well mean a violent response. It might mean the loss of your job, the loss of your family, the loss of your finances, the loss of your freedom, and the rest. And so, fearing the crowds, fearing the loss of all these things, many times we can simply just say, I don't know. And not only that, but also fearing the crowds, sometimes we might even begin to encourage the crowds in their delusion and in their false religion. Because make no mistake, the crowds worship their preferred God at this moment in time. The crowds worship gods very similar to the gods of Greece and Rome, although be it with different names. Filled with sexual depravity and immorality. And I could not imagine any of the early Christians supporting the sexual debauchery of the Romans in any way. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. Sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. For you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light of as light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in fruit, unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them. 
And as the representatives of the Lord, these religious leaders back in Jesus' day ought to have had as their foundation, like we ought to, the word of God, the law of God, and the promises of God. It is these to which these religious leaders ought to have clung and proclaimed and taught without fear and with bold conviction and clarity. Regardless of what the crowds thought, if they thought John was truly delusional, they should have just said it. If John was a prophet, they should have just said it. They should have heard God's truth, understood it, and stood upon it. But instead, these religious leaders thought about it and considered the crowd's response in their decision about questions of truth. This should not be the case. It shouldn't have been the case for them. It should not be the case for us. The beliefs, the assumptions, and views of the crowd or culture, the responses of the crowd or the culture, they have no bearing on what is true and on what is not. The truth of God's word remains true. Even if the entire world despises it, the opinions of the world and the pressures that it exerts on the children of God to adapt or edit the truth should have no weight. They should be of no consideration to us as we believe truth. The truth revealed in Scripture does not change along with public opinion. And yet, in every generation, right, we see many professing Christians trying to rearrange the Word of God to fit with cultural narratives and pressures in order that, like the religious leaders who are answering Jesus here, we might avoid the negative response of the crowd. Far too many of us fear the crowds. And so instead of boldly and courageously standing firm, we can cower and or succumb to the world and its pressures. Or like the Pharisees, we can simply refuse to answer. I'm just going to pull one example just because I've been hearing it a lot. People have asked me for this particular example a lot. I never, ever, ever thought that these would be the fields of battle upon which our culture wages war, but I am asked quite regularly about this issue of pronouns. The cycle is repeating itself as professing Christians out of fear of the crowds when pressured to lie to someone's face by using pronouns that run contrary to the way God physically designed a person, capitulate and therefore fan people ever more into their delusion. Jesus is the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Part of the truth of Christ is God's creation design of male and female as biological realities. Just because humans in their depravity want God's design suppressed which is what Romans 1 tells us that humans have always been doing, that does not mean we play along. We are commanded to be truth-tellers. Every one of us, truth-tellers. As we read in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are called to expose darkness and to proclaim the goodness of God, to teach the world everything that Christ has commanded. It is not loving to lie to people's face. It is not loving to suppress the truth of God. It is not loving to fan anyone into ever-increasing delusions. And you know, the problem is that the culture will respond in a number and a variety of different ways. And they will guilt you as a believer for believing the truth of God. And they'll say things emotionally stirring and pulling things, but don't believe it. They're satanic lies. 
you and I always need to remember the problem here is sin, not truth. Truth brings life. Sin brings death. And so when somebody says to you, just call them what they want to be called, that's a death work, not a life work. It's a lie. Do not buy into the lies of culture, a culture blinded by Satan himself when they say, you know, it's just loving and kind to use the pronouns a person chooses for themselves, even if they don't correspond to God's biological reality. It's a lie. A lie. Are we clear? Are we hearing this? It is a lie. It is the worst, most hateful thing that any supposed follower of Christ can do to confirm a person in their deception, to assist Satan himself in his work of duping people into increasing suppression of God, truth, and his offer of salvation to all who would repent of their sin and believe in Christ. Do not help Satan out. We must avoid altering, editing, minimizing truth out of fear of the crowd because this is an issue right now that will bring about the reprisal of the crowd, right? And as we see religious leaders doing, we must be on guard ourselves against soft-pedaling, downplaying, adjusting, amending, walking with the crowd when it goes against or runs contrary to God's Word. We must stand boldly upon God's Word even when holding to it might embarrass us, even when it might reveal hypocrisy in us that must be repented of, even when it, even when it interferes with what our flesh might so desperately want in the moment. God's Word is always true. The Word of God remains true. It remains unchanging no matter what. As many, as many of us might want it to flex just a little bit, it doesn't. We must do what God's word commands, even when the crowds rage, even when it inflexibly confronts, corrects, and commands us. But back to the narrative. After exposing the religious leaders as men lacking any concern for truth, Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The perceptive reader will note that Jesus did indeed reveal his authority to do these things in holding forth John as a prophet from God who by God's leading pointed Jesus out to the nation and identified him as Messiah. <clears throat> but Jesus is not done yet. He isn't done addressing them which he now does indirectly as he speaks to the crowds by way of a parable. Saying to them in verse 28, So what do you think? Jesus in this parable charges the religious leaders with rebellion in that these are the ones who refuse to listen to and respond correctly to the call of John the Baptist, the call of the Lord through John the Baptist to repent. As we read in Luke chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it was John who cried out, bear fruit in keeping with repentance because even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, to the crowds, Jesus asked, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go out and work in the vineyard today and he answered, I will not but afterward changed his mind and went. The first son's answer, I will not, is a rather rough and impolite response 
to the call of his father. It's the tone and the sound of an irritated, angry, and lazy teenager that refuses to help out with anything around the house. If you've ever had teenagers, you know the tone, don't you? You know the tone. This particular son, however, considered his response and he changed his mind, meaning he rethought it, he regretted his initial response, and he had second thoughts about it. He realized that his reply to the call of the father was a bit hasty, now understands he was wrong, and he changes his mind and goes out into the vineyard in obedience to his father's request. This son reflects the world of tax collectors and sinners. Those who heard the call of John but initially thought, you know what, I've got too much to do, maybe I'm not into all this religious stuff, I know I do bad stuff, but really I'm a good person. God understands me. Whatever disobediences... I have, the Lord will probably ignore that. So, I'm not going. Then they change their mind. They go, they hear, they respond, and they're baptized. The other son, who said, I go, but did not go, gives a polite, dishonest, phony answer. Looks good. Lots of leaves, but no fruit. This is representative of the religious leaders who heard John's message and did not respond. So Jesus asked, which of the two did the will of his father in verse 31? And the answer is obvious, right? The son who obeyed did what was right. The one who spoke rashly but reconsidered and went out and worked in the vineyard. Not the one who spoke the right words but didn't actually do what the father had asked. So the Pharisees even say, the first. And then Jesus makes this most stunning declaration. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom of heaven before you, religious leaders. The tax collectors, those who collect taxes for the corrupt Roman government, those who extorted people, who collected more than was required, who stole from people so that they might pad their own homes. And even worse, they collected the taxes from the Jewish populace And those taxes supported the very Roman army that kept the Jewish populace in subjection. The very Roman army they wanted gone. And on top of that, the prostitutes, those who are engaged in sexual sins, who sold themselves sexually for money, these will enter the kingdom before the self-righteous hypocrites that are the religious leaders. The phrase tax collectors and sinners or tax collectors and prostitutes when used together in this manner comprise everything that the religious leaders of this day would have thought vile, vulgar, and unsavable. And here is Jesus telling these self-exalting, proud, self-loving, outwardly righteous, but more inwardly corrupt leaders These that you think of as the moral filth in society, they are nearer to the kingdom than you are. Could not have been a greater insult to the religious leaders than that. The religious leaders' hearts were so hardened, so blinded, so proud, that even the sight of sinners repenting So Jesus said in verses 31 and 32, even the sight of sinners repenting didn't penetrate their calloused minds. When you see a sinner repent and come to Jesus, if you love Jesus, that's a a time of celebration, isn't it? It's a time for joy. For these religious leaders, it was 
They, had, they were so calloused against it. They weren't, they weren't sorry about their own sin. They had no regrets about rejecting both John and Jesus. And for that reason, Jesus said, tax collectors and prostitutes and vile sinners and those you despise are closer than the seemingly respectable religious folk who put on a good outward show but inwardly are nothing. Three responses in our text. I don't know. Number one. Do not let the crowds determine truth. Do not fear them. Stand boldly and courageously upon the word of God in every single situation and know that you rest in the hands of God who will ultimately vindicate you from everything. Two, I will not go out into the field. Or three, I go, sir. Oh, that we would be those who say, I go, sir and then go and labor courageously in the vineyard for the name, the fame, the glory, the exaltation of our Savior Jesus Christ so that all people might hear and know that they can be saved by grace through faith in his name. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word this morning. And Lord, fear of the crowds is for many of us a reality. It's been a reality for your people since the beginning. Nobody likes to be unliked. Nobody likes to be insulted. Nobody likes to be slandered. Nobody likes to have things taken from them by angry mobs. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit living in us, that you would help apply the word, uh, your word to us that your spirit would help us not to fear those who can take our lives, but that there be only fear of you. Let the fear of your name so fill us that there isn't room for us to fear anything else. I pray that we would be people who don't say, I don't know, but who say, here's what God's word says. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.